Hi, this is Shauna, the CEO and founder of Fuel Talent. One of the things I have loved most in my 25-year recruiting career has always been the stories that people tell. Stories of leadership, career choices, company ideas, and team building. My inspiration for starting the What Fuels You podcast came from being curious about people's lives and wanting to help share their stories. What path brought them to this place? What decisions did they make that led to failures and successes? Who influenced those decisions and what lessons were learned along the way? I hope you enjoy the What Fuels You podcast. Today's guest on the What Fuels You podcast is Bella Sangar. Bella is the founder and CEO of Sri Bella Foods, disrupting the $50 billion ready-to-eat CPG market by leaning into her Indian village roots. She's built a table with partners like Amazon, Albertsons, and Kroger. With Sri Bella, she is inviting the American consumer to enjoy the premium global flavors of her food and leading the emerging direct-to-kitchen category with her delicious meals. Her unique journey and leadership style Relentless defense and approach to building a premium food products makes her a 2021 female CEO to watch, noted by her Puget Sound Business Journal 40 Under 40 Award. Welcome, Bella. So good to see you. Hello, Shana. Thank you for having me. Of course. Love it. Love it. Love it. First, I have to tell you, I love your name. I love the name Bella. Is that your? <laughs> is that like your birth name? On your no, it's not. Everybody asks me that. No, it's not. My name is Belgique. And I went to a French school, actually, which is right behind our house. It was a French immersion school. And so all the teachers started calling me Belle. And then eventually Belle at home turned into Bella. And so my name is kind of morphed from when I was five. I love it. I would choose that any day of the week. I love the name Bella. Okay. So we're starting with some rapid fire. Let's do Um, it. I know that you are a uh, woman of the world. So is there a country that you haven't visited that is on your bucket list? Ooh, that's a good one. Um, I want to go to Japan so bad. I want to eat my way through Japan. Yeah. Yeah. And what is your favorite Indian dish? My favorite Indian dish? Well, today it is, I love you chicken curry. It's uh, a chicken curry that I make for my children. I've been making it for almost a decade. And it's a mix of some of my grandparents' recipes and some of those French culinary skills I picked up working in restaurants. Um, But yeah, it's chicken curry. Um, What three words would others use or would you use to describe yourself as a leader? Oh, that's a good one. Um, I want to say nurturing. Um, Quiet um and forgiving those are good yeah I've learned those over time the the quiet one is I had to work really hard on how to be a great listener and so I've learned over time I need to let my teammates be be in my in space with me and the forgiving is in my own forgiveness of my mistakes I learned to create space for other people making mistakes and that was these are some of the best lessons I've learned yeah yeah Okay, so what is a trait that you most look for or value in a friend? Oh, um, the ability to listen without giving advice, the need to want to give advice. Yeah, that's such a tough one. I work so hard at that. I'm a, total fi- I'm a total fixer, <laughs> controller. I always want to heal everybody and fix it all. And that's a yeah. really important yeah. trait and a good reminder. Um, okay. If you could have any one superpower, what would it be? Hmm. 
any one superpower. That's such a good one. I want to say, I wish I had the patience that I have at work with hard things at home with small children. (laughs) Amen. (laughs) You're speaking my language. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. Are you late to bed or early to rise? I am an early to rise girl, 4.35 a.m. Whoa. What are you doing at that hour? Um, so this is a new adaptation for me. I wasn't always, um, but I really enjoy um, these last like four or five years. I really enjoy that time to myself in the morning. It helps me be reflective. It helps me gain perspective on the things that matter. You know, as a founder, sometimes it's so easy to get wrapped around the axle about getting things done and feeling poorly about the 20% of things that aren't going perfectly. And um, that time in the morning, just being anchored in myself, um, that means everything. And that's the only time I can get it, you know, because then just pick up kids and come home and go, go, go. You know the drill. Mm. Oh, I know the drill, but I'm not as disciplined as you. So anyway, I'm so excited to get to know you better. I want to know everything. Um, You you know, in the intro, I I talked about the Indian village. Like, were you raised in an Indian village? And where exactly? Yeah, that's um, one of my favorite things to talk about. Um, So I was born in Punjab, India. It's the northern part of India. And my mom, um, I was actually conceived in Canada. My mom had to go back to India in the 80s. There was all of these immigration processes that changed. And so I was born in India and we were there for five years until all of her immigration paperwork was finalized. And um, it was a village without electricity, plumbing. And when I tell this story in sales meetings or um, even even to my teammates, they get this look on their face like, oh, poor you. And I have to quickly correct everybody. No, 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 no. It was the most idyllic childhood. I couldn't even buy it for my kids if I wanted to. It was um, the small village. And what was really special about it was it was full of Muslim families, Hindu families, Jain families, Buddhist families. And we all lived cohesively together. And of course, I didn't know at the time that there was all these different belief systems and approaches to life. But as I got older, it resonated in me that the things I saw and felt there um, is how the world should be. That is how the world should be. And that feeling never felt me, left me. That feeling never left me. And I feel like in the work that I do now, I chase that feeling as a, as a North Star mission for us. And you, so your childhood, you would describe as idyllic, you said till you were five. And then, and then where'd you go from there? And what, what, what do people do to earn a living? In a small village without resources. Yeah, it was agrarian. So there's lots and lots of farmland. It was a farming village. And um, my grandparents, um, you know, managed a lot of the land. And I remember every day somebody would come from the farm, um, the farms and bring tons and tons of sugarcane carried in on their heads or carrots or beautiful produce. And then, you know, my grandma and whoever would, they would cook it all and send it back to the farm. So everybody that was, you know, working on the farm could eat that day. It was the most beautiful connection to the earth and the people around us. And it really culminated during harvest season. There was a little Muslim mosque that everybody would go and be a part of um, for celebrating harvest, which is a really big deal in Northern India. And we would all eat this super delicious coconut saffron stained rice. Oh, that, and we that all- sounds sh- so good. 
Yeah. And we all shared it. And it didn't matter if you're a Hindu, Muslim, Sikh or whatever. It was a symbol of shared joy. And that is, I think, the thing that I feel inside my heart when I say it was an idyllic childhood. I never felt like there was an other or I was the other mm. in those really early formative years. Wow. And where are you in the birth order? Do you have siblings? Yeah. So I'm the eldest of three. And so when I moved to Canada, when we moved back to Canada, where my dad and his family were, um, I was followed, my brother followed me. And then I have a younger sister, too. Wow. OK. Yeah. And so. Um, do you still have a lot of relatives that are in India and Canada or where's your family now? Yeah. So most of our family, minus an aunt or uncle or two who just didn't want to leave, you know, they were like, nope, this is the best life we could possibly have. We don't want to go to the West. And in some ways I can appreciate their sentiment, but all of our family now is either in the UK or in Canada. Um, and I grew up in a little suburb called Delta, right outside of Vancouver proper. So maybe 30 minutes out of downtown Vancouver is where I um, lived until I was, you know, 18, 19 years old before I moved to Seattle. Yeah. So your dad never left to go back to India. It was just your mom waiting on the visa and, and yes. the immigration papers. So yeah. is your dad, what kind of um, business was he in and what was the messaging to you around like work and, a, and being a little Indian girl? Oh my gosh. Oh, um, that's a loaded question, Shauna. <laughs> <laughs> that's um, the intention. That is the intention, yeah. Um, so that's a tough one because I actually spent a lot more time with my grandfather, my dad's, my dad's father, than I did with my own dad. My dad um, had schizophrenia. So he was, by default, you know, just not able to participate the way um, you know, I probably would have liked. And I spent a lot of time with my grandfather who was a business owner and he had a food production company of all mm. things, wonk, wonk, wonk. and I grew up around him and there was, um, he never made me feel like, oh, you're a little Indian girl. He made me feel like you are a human being. And the one thing I want you to learn by watching me and being in my space um, is there's dignity to all work. And how you do one thing is how you do all things. And he was a little bit military about it. But if you think about it, he was an immigrant from, you know, India. He didn't come to Canada in his 50s. He built this multi-billion dollar business. He didn't speak a lick of English for the first wow. 10 years he was there. And I, I think that's, you know, one of the source of the best leadership lessons I've ever learned is you must treat people with dignity. And you must demonstrate that and how you do your own work and work alongside with them. And that's how you build something that lasts. That sounds incredible. So did you yeah. have a sense, if you look back and reflect, do you have a sense of what you thought maybe you'd want to pursue or be when you grew up? I always had a dream of being in broadcast journal journalism. You'd be so good. You're so articulate <laughs> and beautiful and, you know, smart. You'd crush that. Oh, That's your like 2.0, 3.0. Yeah, maybe, maybe, you know, next chapter we'll do something there. But that's what I always wanted to do. In fact, I applied to this college on the East Coast called Ryerson, Ryerson Polytechnic. I wanted to go there for my journalism degree, but that didn't happen. Um, but I was the eldest of three. Uh, my parents officially got divorced when I was 14. That's when my dad was officially diagnosed with schizophrenia. And that was 
that was a big burden to carry. Um, and so I had a lot of part-time jobs. Um, I was helping with my brother and sister and mental health is not something that's really talked about openly and with the thoughtfulness it deserves, particularly um, in South Asian culture. And so it was so taboo and um, it was really, really hard for my mom who became kind of ostracized mm. in our community because of that. Uh, I mean, you just don't want to name it, but mm -hmm. there was no choice. We, we had to name it. He deserved to get help. And um, schizophrenia is just absolutely... So, so difficult, painful. So, painful, so painful, especially when there's small children involved. And, mm -hmm. um, you know, it was a tough, it was a tough childhood for sure, but so many lessons too. So yeah. many good lessons. It's interesting. Cause when I hear it, I just think of it as being like, okay, so you're a child and you've got a parent and what it represents is like, um, unpredictability mm -hmm. and a lack of like stability of a feeling of like, I know what I'm going to get and it's safe. And it would, it'd be interesting to think about talking to entrepreneurs and seeing like what, who, who are the people that become entrepreneurs? Are they people who are just fine? Cause that's your comfort. Like you're mm -hmm. comfortable in that, you know, lack of safety because you're just like, I'm just, I'm used to that feeling. Or it seems like almost people might gravitate towards something very secure and very safe. That's a really good question. I had to get there actually. So I, entrepreneurship for me is a journey back to myself, if that makes sense. The way I grew up as a brown little girl in um, a melting pot of Canada, um, you know, with an absentee parent and, you know, a high pressure high school environment. I was a total nerd, um, but I, I, I didn't feel like I belonged anywhere. I, I felt, at, you know, like I stuck out like a sore thumb everywhere I went. Mm -hmm. And so I was really small for most of my life, actually. I didn't. Oh, I, interesting. Yeah, I was very small in, in every aspect of my life, actually. And um, it's so fascinating. I forget the name of his book, but there's this um, leadership author that really moved me. And, you know, to sum up his book, essentially what he's saying is your personal story, in fact, becomes your leadership story. Mm -hmm. And I didn't understand it at the time, but it makes so much sense now because in the course of building my business, I actually had to, um, as a direct result of building a meaningful business that's built to last, you have to scaffold up yourself internally too. Totally. And as a woman of color and as a mother of small children, that has been my saving grace actually. And um, the journey has been so fulfilling. I can't wait to, I can't wait to get to it. But so you yeah. said that you were a nerd, like just meaning like you were kind of, um, I don't even know when people say that. I think that's yeah. actually a good thing. Yeah, like, yeah. Find the nerds. Those are always yeah. the successful people. Yeah. Um, meaning that you were like super studious or that you didn't have uh, a lot of interests outside of school or big social life. Like how would you define, what does that yeah. mean to you when you say you're a yeah. nerd? So Indian, right? So that means you're going to be a doctor or you're going to be a lawyer or you're going to be an engineer. And those are the only options. And I'm inherently a creative person but I had to work really really hard for my grades like science and you know chemistry math you name it but I think the nerdiness for me was more I hid mm. I was really comfortable hiding in the library and you know like you have to remember it was a burb and it was an immigrant family so I went to school you know I was tucking my sweaters into my corduroys I had no idea what it meant to be cool but it felt comfortable to hide in the library where nobody was it's so interesting to me when I interview people <laughs> and I'm meeting you at this point in your life 
And, you know, obviously this is a podcast where many people will just be listening and not seeing, but I see this like movie star looking beautiful, confident woman. And it's just fascinating to me when you talk to people about their childhoods or that I see my kids and they're in that like teenager years of their life. Mm -hmm. And, And just thinking that so many people describe their middle school years or their high school years as painful and, you know, or that, that they aren't at all today like they were back then. So yeah. you ended up going to UW, so obviously smart. And um, <laughs> thank you. Went to go become a Husky. Was that kind of just so this is what we do living yeah. where we live? Or did you look everywhere? No, I didn't look everywhere at all. I, um, I moved here one as like, you know, I think a lot of kids who come from hard backgrounds, um, it becomes too much, right? And so you take your first train ticket out of there. So I got the heck out of Dodge. And I came to Seattle and I moved here because I actually met my kid's father. Oh, and yeah. And the Seattle yeah, guy? Yeah. He's actually also a Torontonian. He's a Canadian. Mm. And so he was here for work. Um, and so I, I got married really early. I got married when I was 23. So oh. that's, that's why I picked Seattle. But I got to say, I couldn't have picked a better city. Like circumstance couldn't have picked a better city. It feels like Canada in so many ways, but it's still small and quaint and humble. And I get to wear my Birkenstocks and I don't have to look (laughs) polished all the time. Right. So I think you can go high low, which is awesome. Yeah. You know, most of the time it's low. Right. <laughs> well, during the pandemic, it became extremely, I'm like, where am I wearing these stilettos? Yeah, no kidding. No kidding. So um, Seattle has been a gift. It feel, This feels like my home. So what did you end up pursuing and studying um, at school? And, and then um, how did that kind of prepare you for your entrepreneurial journey? Well, I don't know if it did. Um, I think it was a series of hiding behind different ways to prescribe value to myself. Mm-hmm. So I um, actually, I was an international student. So I started at BCC and then I transferred to UW, um, but I started pre-med. So I did all the biological Making your parents happy. Making <laughs> my parents happy. Yeah. And then when I went to UW, I wanted, this was like um, something I didn't know I cared about, but I do very deeply is public policy. And so I spent a whole, you know, a couple semesters just diving deep into American public policy and really trying to understand what moves the dial, what moves people, what engages civic culture, what is the antidote of civic culture, what helps, what doesn't help. And I was so curious about it because I think in some ways living in America, um, I, I was thinking about these things and I didn't really think about them in Canada that much because Canada, I, 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 and you know, immigrant families feel like they belong, you know, like, of course, your my high school experience might have been a little different. That's adolescence. But I think at large, it is a welcoming, warm place. But I picked up on something here. And it was curious to me. And I, I actually remember back, um, I was a teenager. And I remember, I think Clinton was on Letterman. And he said something about, you know, you cannot judge people's voting choices you know, like Republicans and Democrats, it's so easy to judge each other. It feels so contrasting at times, but you really have to put yourself in that person's shoes and think and feel what they're feeling and from what perspective they're looking at their challenges from and what fear or joy they're voting from. And I never forgot that, that sense of curiosity about we're all alike. And yet there's so many explanations for why we feel different, which is um, kind of an arc of my life, I think, when I look back on it. 
Yeah. Yeah. So you studied, did you study public policy or did you, what did you end up studying at UW? Yeah. Political science. Yeah. And what did, what did you want to do? I know that you got married young and, and had kids and what was, what was your kind of um, career path or what were you thinking you wanted to pursue? Oh yeah, no, I'm a, I'm a professional failer. So I have <laughs> failed at many, many things and they ate away at my self-confidence and self-worth. So I applied to law school. I took the LSAT twice. I think I got like a 162 one, so 152. And those numbers only mean anything to you if you like have gone through the process. Yeah, I'm right? like, I don't yeah. even know what it's out of. Like you could tell me anything. I'd be like, well, that sounds good. Yeah, I remember at the time Harvard was 172 UW was 164 in order to mm. enter their law schools and I was like I'm not even close guys and um and then I did think about medical school but I just it it, it just felt so wrong at my core like I wanted to do it to make everybody happy so I could mm. get the pat on the back but I just knew there was something more for me that required me to come out of this shell I had put myself in or mm-hmm. circumstance had put me in but really I knew it was my job to crack that code and once I did that I would find personal gold in my development and my acceptance of myself so you know it was a rough couple of years um, working at jobs that didn't feel fulfilling I worked at the math department at UBC for a while I um, you know worked at a food tech place here in Seattle but it was um you know, around the time that um, my daughter was a couple of years old, I remember thinking, this can't be it. Yeah. Like, this just can't be it, right. you know? And um, there was a farmer's market in our neighborhood. We had bought a house in Queen Anne. And I thought, I'm going to go and I'm not going to go back to academia. I'm not going to go back to an N5. I'm going to figure out what this thing is about. And everybody was freaking out in my life. Like, this is insane. We didn't work this hard for you to go and have a food stand at the farmer's market. And I Mm -hmm. thought, I know guys, but I got to see about this feeling. I got this feeling, right? What was the feeling? The feeling was, um, it sounds crazy now, but the feeling was, I have a curiosity about adding value to the marketplace. And I'm going to go do this thing that's going to be very embarrassing for my family. They're going to see me as a servant, which is, you know, from where they come from, no bueno, Mm -hmm. after they've sacrificed so much. And I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to test this as a market research opportunity. Mm -hmm. And so I had a farmer's market stand called Holy Cow Seattle. And I was always secretly passionate about culinary. I would secretly take culinary classes. I would secretly like binge watch Laura Calder, who's this Canadian female French chef, you know, when I should have been watching like CNN or something. Yeah. And I had learned through the course of being my grandfather's daughter and being in his presence as a, as a food professional. And then the moving feelings around food and connection and, and how meaningful that can be to bring people together from my, from my childhood in that village, that there was something I had to see here. And so what I started doing was preparing Indian inspired meals with a lot of French and and other global techniques and saying, what is the reaction I'm going to get here? And the, you know, within the first couple of weeks, people were bringing Tupperware and saying, you know, like, we need this for leftovers. Yeah. So it was really great. It was really great. And um, that was the very, very humble beginnings of Shribella Foods. And then fast forward, 
a bunch of years. Um, you know, we have our own facility now. I, I had to learn how to be an operator. Um, we how long are, have you had the business? Five years. Five years. Five years. So you started it in the um, at the farmers market. And what was yeah. that first? What were those first like favorite things that people would come back and make? Do you, are you serving that this week? So I believe in texture and I believe in fresh flavor, which are not two things that global food is really associated with. And global food, you know, as far as I think broadly Americans perceive it is cheap, um, slimy, slushy, brown food. Mm. Uh, But that's actually not the case at all, actually. And I um, wanted to bring forward color and texture and a gourmet culinary approach that sometimes is interpreted as being contemporary or modern. But really, it's just an elegant way that my family cooks Indian food. And so it was, you know, lentil curries with lovely pickled vegetables or an an herb citrus sauce on top. Um, You know, but the idea was to showcase the flavors in the food in a format that they weren't used to seeing. You know, now I've learned the saying, oh, supply chain mirrors consumers, but also it's it's dawned on me that um, restaurants mirror consumer assumptions as well. So Indian restaurants here, or, you know, broadly in America, they're probably serving one or two, three, three things. And so people don't know about the other things. They don't even know to ask for them. Right. But, or that know that there's different areas. I have several Indian friends who are from yeah. different areas of India, where it's yes. like, are you from the North or from the South? And the influences of where you're raised and how you're, you know, how that impacts you. Oh my gosh. India is the size of Europe. So how can you say that this entire subcontinent's food can be described by one word curry, which, which is not the case at all. Um, And so, you know, we started with Indian flavors and it was, it was very successful. And um, I think, I think Americans are ready. I think Mexican food has had its moment. Uh, it's continuing to have its moment. And we can see that with the success that Chipotle has had too broadly. And I think on the, the next um, curve of it, I think Indian food, it will have its moment and its opportunity in South Asian culture in general. I mean, we see that with David Chang, so many amazing things that are happening. Yeah. And yeah. what's been the biggest um, challenge? And, and um, just is it like, hey, where do I go from here? Which direction? Because there's so many different directions you can take a food business. Mm-hmm. Well, I had a couple. Um, I had a couple thoughts in my mind, right? I was a mom of small children. And I was well aware of what restaurant culture is like for for women. And I particularly did not want to make that um, a lifestyle for me. And I wanted to be at home with my kids um, at night. Um, I did stage at a couple of restaurants, you know, uh, secretly. Nobody knew at the time. But I worked at Cafe Juanita and I worked at a couple um, Tom Douglas places. I actually taught culinary classes at his school. Um, And so the hardest thing about actually operationalizing what I'm doing now, which is we're a consumer goods company. We make packaged goods. We make fresh premium meals that Mm -hmm. are direct to kitchen solutions. The hardest thing about this was learning how to be a leader and an operator. And it wasn't the technical stuff, like making sure we're in compliance with federal compliance, making sure that we have all of our audit requirements or training people or making sure we can make money off of these formulations. The toughest thing was learning how to have tough conversations. And from where I came from, really meek and small, that was the thing that was really holding me back as a business owner and a, and a leader. And so once 
I got on the other side of that, things became easy because it's the, it's the squishy stuff that's hard, right? The other stuff is almost calculatable. It's yeah. easy in comparison. Yeah. yeah. How many different products are you selling and how did you even break into some of these larger markets and larger stores? Like, I mean, you've gotten into some incredible uh, yeah. supermarkets. I mean, it's, it, these are hard ones to break into. It's a hard industry. It is a hard industry. It is. And I'm so glad that I had my blinders on <laughs> when I set out to do this. Um, so how we got into the accounts that we're in today. So we're an Amazon fresh, we're an Amazon grocery, um, go was, uh, we're a ground floor partner at go early, early on. And now we, um, we are we at Albertsons. We're at local premium grocery, like Met market, and we're just growing through the Pacific Northwest. We just got distribution through Oregon. Um, I remember something one of my mentors, Jeff Hansberry, who was uh, early CPG at Starbucks, um, said to me, and he said, hey, you know, when I used to sit around the table with, with folks, it would always come out at some point in the conversation, hey, brands aren't found in boardrooms. Brands are built by relentless human beings who are on a mission to do something with blinders on. And that was me. I was on a mission to do something with blinders on. And I think the fact that I had my blinders on and I wasn't using my um, giving into my inclination to go to data and say, well, this is what the consumers say we should make as products. The data is leaning towards this. And this is how many times Google searched butter chicken or whatever. I said, I'm going to make what I love to eat. And I'm going to offer America food that I think will move them and will help me tell the story about why this feeling has never left me from when I was a five-year-old girl living in a village in India. And the buyers responded. And if I were to give an entrepreneur in my same industry or product industry advice, it would be, you always know best. You have to trust your gut. And I'm so glad I did because... Um, People buy your passion and your excitement and your authenticity. And that comes across in the products. And um, I wouldn't have done it any other way. But so, so I love those stories. But what is the what is an, an example of a story of like how long did it take you to get how do you get into an Amazon? Is that like oh. calling or I'm just gonna network and network and network, or you just got no. lucky? Like how do I, these things happen? It was the it was the right place at the right time. So I had decided to go all into buying a building and building out our first test facility. And at that time, um, somebody from Go had come to me and said, hey, we heard that you have this culinary perspective and that you're passionate about this. Uh, would you like to partner with us? And I said, yes. And so the, <laughs> first, the first CPG unit I ever shipped was to Amazon. That's amazing. And it's and been a rapid learning experience since then. Oh, I'm sure. Yeah. I'm sure. And how many different products are you selling if I wanted to go find yeah. all Strubella 
products, how many are there? So today on shelves, you can find 24. So how we built the catalog was we started with um, single portion entrees, which is a really great opportunity for trial and awareness for consumers. And then um, we have about eight products and meal accessories, um, which are like sauces and curries, which you can build and still um, do a little bit of cooking at home. Um, but everything essentially is ready to use. And then our third category is multi-portion meals, which is an expression of our single portion meals. So across all of those, um, we want to make sure that you're able to have Sri Bella global inspired fresh food anytime, anywhere in any kind of grocery store. And so right now we're excited about pushing those and getting people to try it. It's been hard actually without the opportunity to do tastings in grocery stores. Oh yeah, I'm sure. Yeah, yeah. but the brand is um, thriving despite that. Well, if I just want to uh, make dinner for the family, what's what would you recommend? Well, to mom serving family yeah. five. Yeah, that's a great question. So the tikka sauce flies out the door. Um, so our tikka masala sauce is a very light, elegant version of uh, the heavy, creamy sauce you might mm -hmm. see at all the Indian restaurants. Mm -hmm. It's very cardamom and ginger forward. Ooh, it's very delicate. Yeah, it's very delicate. So you just want to bring that home. It's 24 ounces of sauce. Just warm it through and you can serve any grilled protein or steak or vegetables with it. And before you know it, dinner is done in 10 minutes. Love it. And then some yeah. rice. And then some rice naan. Not if you're on your crazy diet. I know, but, yeah, but I just, <laughs> I'm getting so hungry. <laughs> yeah, but that's my job. That's my job is to find ways to make, you know, our direct-to-kitchen products add value and inconvenience to your life in a way that you don't feel guilty serving it to your family. Like all of our products are clean. They're preservative free. They're mm -hmm. meant to be used over and over again as a solution to not just cooking, but meal occasions. You can right. snack them. You can eat them at many meals. Yes. When I also read that it's, you know, obviously it's different because it's super fresh. It's like seven to 14 days of shelf life. That's right. Right. Even for yeah. the sauces. Yes, yeah. we are. Yeah, that's our distinction is um, we are distinctly fresh. It's never frozen. Yeah. It doesn't come from the East Coast. Here's my thing. If we can send a man to the moon, why can't we figure out a way to ship fresh fruit across the coast? Like it doesn't yeah. make sense to me. We should be eating cleaner and better as a country. I agree. That's the goal. Right. So how have you funded the business? So originally um, we. We. Uh, bootstrapped it. Wow. Yeah. I, I believed in this thing from day one and we bootstrapped it. We bought the building, we invested in the renovations. And for me, I approached it as some of my male founder friends have approached like their SaaS businesses. I wanted to be very thoughtful about it. So I wanted to learn and, and shape it and mold it because I, I'm not a CPG veteran. I don't come with decades of experience, but I wanted to learn and wait to see what the consumers would say and take all of that feedback and you know, over two years of beta, really integrate it into the products. And that actually happened where we revisited the nomenclature on the, on the labels. We changed the copy on the bottom of the label. We tweaked formulas and figured out how to scale them without adding preservatives, whether you're making a batch a 500 or a thousand, how do we still make it delicious and, and fresh every single time as we set our eyes on scaling this company? Yeah. Um, and you said scaling it, what's the plan? Um, I would love to see Sri Bella in every single dinner table in this country. Yeah. 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 
And so how do people, if they're finding it, what, what's the next step? If you're like, okay, 2022 is going to be a massive scale year for us. Is that just going into more stores or is there ever a, um, I guess that would be the, the approach, right? Not direct to consumer. Not yet. Um, we, we are thinking about direct to consumer. Um, it is something I'm very curious about. Um, I think we have a strong place in the marketplace to do that when we're ready. For now, I'm focused on serving the customer that's here today. And that is, uh, I want to blanket my backyard with Shrubella. I want to you know, get us into every single premium conventional grocery store, every convenience location and give people the opportunity to try it. And I think, you know, based on the strength of the brand, look, it's a story about someone who cares deeply about human connection and has a passion for global food, which is not something we see on the shelf today. There's a big hole there. Um, I think the brand has an opportunity to go into non-fresh too. I think we can do ambient. I think we can do gorgeous teas and spice kits that are built on the same values, that are built on the same curiosity about culinary and um, elegance about global food. Um, for now, um, the next year, 12 to 16 months, we're focusing on taking care of all of our partnerships through Oregon and uh, Northern California. Well, I'm excited to watch you continue to Thank expand, you. and especially just like um, a woman, a woman of color, a mother. I mean, Thank it's you. just, we need more, we need to kind of clone you. And, and this is, I think <laughs> that the you. world, I mean, just imagine how thoughtful women are about building their businesses and thinking about the intentions you set around um, being able to show up and be a great mom and be a great business leader. Um, it's just super inspiring. Thank you, Shauna. I still yeah. have my two front teeth, you know, it's gotten kicked <laughs> a couple times. How are you doing it all? You're getting up at 4.30. Um, what do you like to do on the weekends? Are you able to kind of check out and when you're with your kids? Yeah, so I, I do get some time to myself. When I'm when I'm with myself, I, uh, this is so cliche, I like to go on long walks with my dog. <laughs> I have a COVID puppy. His name is Coco. He's an Italian water puppy. So we like to go on runs and walks. And there's not a, there's not a lot else you can do in COVID, right? Um, I'm also doing a lot of writing right now. There's a writing project I'm working on. And then when I'm with the kids, we love to cook. We love That's to cook. Awesome. Yeah. My six-year-old loves to make pasta. My nine-year-old loves to make I love you chicken curry. So between the two of them, the kitchen's never really clean. But um, what a gift you're giving them, though, <laughs> to be able to cook. That's it's a incredible. life skill, right? Oh, it's a life skill. Yes. Yeah. I, lo I love cooking, and my husband's a really good cook. But we um, we haven't really taught the kids at all. Oh so my gosh. I think that's fantastic. Thank you. Yeah. So my ultimate question for you is, what fuels you? Hmm. I want to leave a room or leave a community or grocery store or a team meeting knowing that I made it easier for the humans there to see each other in a truer light. Wow. I've asked, as you know, I've had so many people on this podcast. I love that answer. I am going to write that down. <laughs> I, of course, couldn't get it because I was just listening, but wow. I just got chills. I love that. Thank you. And I, I think that comes on the heels of really struggling to see myself for so long. One as a woman, one as, um, you know, an immigrant and the, the learning and unpacking all of the things that hold us back. I think, um, 
you know, I think you can hear a bit of what I just said in all leaders that get it. Mm. Mm -hmm. I, I want it to be easier for you to see yourself by seeing the other. I think if I can accomplish that in every project I work on or every meeting I, I lead, I think I, I would feel really, really good about myself. Thank you for listening to the What Fuels You podcast. Be sure to subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes, Google Podcasts, or Spotify, and follow us on social media to keep up with the latest news and episodes. You can also contact us at podcast at fueltalent.com to provide feedback, ask questions, and share topics or guests you would like us to cover in the future. We hope you feel inspired by our guests and that we have helped fuel your day. Join us next time for another episode of What Fuels You. Thank you.